questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hey, and welcome to the program. Can you believe it? It's another episode of the Restoring the Soul podcast, and I have a definitive amount of time to record this introduction, and I'm on the sixth floor of a building where our ministry is located and where our studio is, and above me, there are workmen with large pipes and hammers that are banging the ceiling. We're going to try to edit that out, but if it's still there, uh, just consider this the most cutting-edge thing where the podcast has all of the background noise, like it's NPR or something like that. So I'm delighted today to have you experience Kurt Thompson in the second of a two-part conversation. Kurt is an author, speaker, and psychiatrist in private practice in Falls Church, Virginia, and he's the founder of the Center for Being Known. In the first part of this conversation, I forgot to include information about the website uh, for the Center for Being Known, but you can learn more about Kurt and his organization there, including videos, audio downloads, and other resources. That's beingknown.com. So Kurt is the author of Anatomy of the Soul and a second book, which was so powerful, The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves. Kurt is a frequent speaker on these topics of interpersonal neurobiology, spiritual formation, at workshops, conferences, and retreats around the U.S. and around the world. He is a graduate of Wright State University School of Medicine. He completed his psychiatric residency at Temple University Hospital, and much of his work is now committed to training other professionals across cultures and in multiple vocational domains with all of this material. Kurt also serves as an elder at Washington Community Fellowship, which is a congregation of the Mennonite Church in Washington, D.C. Kurt and his wife Phyllis are the parents of two children, and they reside in Arlington, Virginia. So let's jump in to part two of my conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. I think many listeners would be surprised to learn that the mind is not the same as this organ called the brain in their head. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and you actually described it as not just embodied, but relational, that our mind is something beyond that organ um, and that it's, um, we'll, go, we'll unpack that idea that, that our mind is relational. Yeah, well, so one of the things that I think that um, is is helpful to see. So when when we when yeah, it's interesting. I think when you read the Shema, right, that the Lord our God is one. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your strength. In the Old Testament, that command never includes the word the English word mind. We don't get that until Jesus inserts it in the Gospels, and. When we insert that part of, uh, of what it means for us to love God with everything that we are, um, you know, I, as a uh, modern or postmodern Westerner, uh, I think to myself, oh, I, I, Kurt, should love God with everything that I am. And I think very individualistically. And I think, yeah, you know, this, this is I, Kurt, should do this. I don't really get the impression 
uh, I don't think in terms of like, well, that will mean I'll, I'll need to like love God with all that I am by loving him with other people that to love him with all that I am necessarily requires me. It requires me to love my enemies because if I'm not loving my enemies, I'm actually not loving God with all that I am. And to this, we would say, well, like, where's that coming from? And we would say, well, if you look at physics and then you would say, oh my goodness, what do physics have to do with any of what we're talking about? Well, if you just think about it, um, uh, if I, you know, we, we like to say that, uh, the most, um, you know, 60 to 90% of all human communication takes place non-verbally. It takes place between myself and another person as I hear their voice, as I see their eye contact, I look at their body language, all these things that come to me. And how do I get that? I mean, how do I know those things? Well, uh, I actually have to have them come to me through a photon and wave form of light that come across the room from that person to me. And when that happens, that's actually going to land on the back of my retina go to my brain, fan out, activate other parts of my body. And I now am going to then think about this, but not apart from all these things that are taking place in the physical universe between me and this other person. And so for me to actually love that person and love God, the mind, as I now experience it, is something that's actually including all of these things that are taking place between us, not just these private thoughts that I have in my head. Now, at first glance, this might seem like, like really heady stuff. This might seem like this is, this is not for the common per. This is not for like everyday life. But I would say this, for those of your listeners who have newborns, who have infants, those of your listeners who have friends who are suffering physically, we know what it means to pick up that newborn and love that newborn. And the way that you do is you look in their eye, you touch their skin, and you know that the way love is happening is between your two bodies. You know that when you're sitting with your friend who's dying of cancer, you know that loving them is holding their hand while you both weep without words. And you know that your minds are being changed. And it's not just about what you think, but it's taking place in that physical universe. We know that when Jesus loved the blind man in John 9, he echoing Genesis chapter 2, where God formed man from the mud of the earth, Jesus picks up mud and puts it on his eyes and touches him because loving him was not something that was separate from what was taking place in his embodied life. But we have become accustomed in the West to thinking that so much of our spirituality is just contained within the things that I think in my theology and my logical linear processes that being a Christian really amounts to, you know, those logical linear precepts that I assent to without recognizing that, no, to love Jesus is to love even my enemy in fully embodied ways and therefore love the Lord my God with all of my mind especially the parts that at first glance I don't really know are included in it. Wow. Well, two thoughts. The first one is uh, thank you again because the the idea of 
the Colossians 3, for example, when Paul says uh, to put on the mind of Christ or to set your mind on things above, this shines a whole new light on it that, that part of how we do that is actually by paying attention to our bodies and to allow our bodies to be a vessel of doing that as much as the brain and furrowing your brow and trying to think a particular thought. Sure, sure. And I think it also points to this notion that um, my soul, uh, the consecration of my soul, the sanctification process of my soul, that God, the, the working out of my salvation uh, necessarily requires my interaction with other people. It necessarily requires me to be known by other people. We, we routinely work with people and, and we say, look, um, we know that God knows us, but it's a very different thing for us to have the experience of being known by God. And that is deeply reflected. The degree to which I am deeply known by God experientially is directly related to the degree that I'm deeply known by other human beings with real flesh and real blood. So we frequently ask people, could you give us the names of three people who collectively, if we were to ask them, could tell us everything there is to know about you? Everything. There's not a thing that you experience that you think, a thing that you're ashamed of, a thing that you're joyful, hopeful about, your worst nightmare, your greatest hope. There's nothing that they don't know. Because that is the kind of practice that God is inviting us into to get us ready for heaven. As we say, if we're not practicing for heaven, when it gets here, it may crush us if we're not ready for it. Yeah, I often think about uh, with some of the debates about hell and is there a hell and what will heaven be like? I, I, I meet a lot of believers who I go, the way that you talk about your faith, you're sure not going to enjoy heaven very much. Mm, mm, mm. Kurt, as you describe this this uh, this necessity of being connected to others in relationship, even at the neurological level, it just strikes me that, that that's what God is like, that God is Trinity and, and that there's a necessity for them to, to, to reveal themselves in their fullness, that it's in that relationship. Absolutely, Michael. I think that, you know, uh, you know, God... I think God takes us far more seriously than we do. And like he was really serious when he said, hey, let's make mankind to live like we live. To live in this uh, abundance of joy, in this space of abundance that I just can't get enough of being in the room with you. And, you know, when we see uh, evil manipulate the use of shame in its beginning in the third chapter of Genesis, we see that, you know, shame translates abundance into a very different thing. And it transforms in a bent way, our notion from abundance to a notion of scarcity. And we don't live as if when we walk into the room that everybody is going to stand up and say like, Oh my gosh, like we have been waiting all day for you to get here. We are so glad you're in the room. We don't live like that. I mean, I don't live like that. I'm right. I mean, I, I get up and I, I want to, I, I mean, I still have parts of me that worries that my wife isn't really sure she wants me in the room. I mean, and, and this is the person to whom I'm married. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm 55 years old and I'm still wrestling. I mean, I'm, I'm wrestling with these deeply held long standing convictions that I live in a world of scarcity, that I live in a world in which 
at the end of the day, if I'm not doing my level best to do my very best, like, you know, people are going to discover who I really am and they're going to go. And I'm going to be left living in a box, you know, under a bridge. Uh, you know, this is this thing that I wrestle with, despite the fact that we read what God wants. I mean, um, I have uh, I have plenty of practice living as if I'm not living in that world. And so it's this idea that what happens to us interpersonally from the very, very earliest moments of being born and, and probably prenatally as well, that all of that experience and interaction shapes our brain and then the result of that is we we have varying degrees of ability to rest and be open to being known in relationship. You're absolutely right. I think that, uh, you know, we we talk about yeah, another feature of interpersonal neurobiology is this uh, element of neuroplasticity, right? This idea that those neurons that fire together, wire together. And the more we practice certain patterns, the more those patterns will take on a certain automaticity. They will kind of automatically fire in certain ways. And so as Paul says in Romans 7, the things that I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Because in, in many respects, my brain has been wired to do those things. It tends to go against uh, what we want to be because we've practiced living what we tend to call in our field, we call disintegrated lives. We have this word integration that in the field of interpersonal neurobiology also has a, an explicit meaning, this notion that we have different functions of the mind. The mind does many, many different things. We sense things, we image things, we feel things, we think things, we do things. We have different parts of the brain that are correlated with different functions. And a mind that flourishes is a mind that does two things. Number one, it sets about the process of differentiation, meaning that like a lovely symphony, each part of the orchestra, the woodwinds, the brass, the strings, they each are working really hard to do their part really well. So each part of us, the part that senses, the part that images, feels, thinks, each gets plenty of practice at doing its role well. But the other thing that needs to happen, in addition to differentiation, is this notion of linkage. All of those differentiated parts in the orchestra need to be linked together in order for the symphony to be whole in order for the piece of music to flourish. So at some point, the woodwinds actually need to listen to the brass and vice versa. It is the conductor that enables these different parts of the orchestra to come together to create an integrated symphony. We like to say that the part of the brain that is responsible for this and where this integrating place, this integrating feature takes place is the prefrontal cortex but what is so interesting to me about this is that in order for my prefrontal cortex to do its job of bringing together all those different parts of my particular orchestra, my brain actually has to also be integrated with your brain. In order for my brain to become integrated, I also need to be integrated in the whole connection of being with other people. And so what's taking place inside my mind also needs to be reflected between me and other people. 
in order for my mind to flourish. And so we see how the flourishing of any individual's mind is deeply rooted in and connected to the flourishing and the connection of that individual in the context of community. You can't separate these, which of course is reflected in this biblical, spiritual, formational practice of solitude moving to community, moving to solitude, moving to community. We see this in Paul's writings of 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about this notion of the body of Christ and these different parts of the body, a body in which no parts can say to the other parts, you don't belong, and no part can say to the rest of the parts, I don't belong because I'm not enough. In this body where shame is not permitted to have the talking stick, we see that these different integra- these different parts are well integrated, and so each individual becomes integrated as the community as a whole is integrated. And we would say this is what is, I mean, this also is reflected in the way that Genesis 1 and 2 are written, this integration of these differentiated parts of day one, day two, day three, day four, all of these come together in the resting of God on day seven under this leadership of humankind that he's given the stewardship office to, to rule over and to help name things and so forth. So we see that this interpersonal neurobiology field is really inviting us. It's usually, it's, in my view, it's God's mouthpiece, God's current mouthpiece in a world that is paying a lot of attention to neuroscience. It's God's mouthpiece inviting people into this space of joy and delight and flourishing where we become whole as individuals, certainly, but only as we understand that that's to take place in the context of this community that is what the new heaven and new earth are all about. So you've kind of touched on the edges, Kurt, of the idea of attachment. You talked about the need for solitude, but then the linkage um, and connection. Uh, And and attachment in human beings, again, going from an infant to their parent or caregiver all the way forward in life has implications in terms of how our brain and our neural pathways and our mind are all wired together together. Uh, So can you talk about attachment? Uh, It's a word that's thrown around a lot, especially in counseling and psychotherapy circles. And and the the wonderful thing in your book, Anatomy of the Soul, is you talk about attachment and the four attachment styles through the lens of neurobiology. So can you give a summary of that? Yeah, and I I know that you're you're familiar with this. You you feel this and sense this in your own work uh, with folks. Um, I think that... uh, both the work of attachment research as well as its connection to uh, the actual brain development that it's shaping has been a large part of what's been so exciting uh, for researchers and for clinicians like yourself and like me over the last uh, you know 10 to 15 years. We typically like to talk about attachment as being that interpersonal interaction between a child and an adult caregiver. And it's that interpersonal interaction where in which the child in their immature brain utilizes the strengths of the adult brain to help organize itself. And what that looks like is the baby comes into the world and has a particular temperament 
And as we like to say, no two siblings ever grow up in the same house. And those different temperaments, then, uh, you know, they get a particular response from the parents. And that child will then attach to their parents in response to the way they sense their parents approaching them. And that attachment process, the way that I attach to my parent in response to my parents' approach to me is then going to have significant implications on how I learn to navigate human relationships for the rest of my life. These attachment patterns, these different styles, as you mentioned, fall into four different categories. One is a secure attachment style in which the child learns to navigate a range of different emotional experience, whether that's experience that's pleasant or experience that's afflicting and difficult, challenging. But they learn to navigate that, and they have a way to make a, make a comeback. They're flexible. They're adaptive. They can kind of take a punch, as it were, because their parents are mindful of their emotional states, mindful of their life, and paying attention to what that child needs. Not just that the child only ever gets what the child wants, but really helps that child learn to know that what I feel and what I think really matters in the world. And I can then learn through my parents how to self-soothe and how to be okay, even when I'm not okay. And I can go to others for help and trust that help will come. Mm. When that doesn't happen, we get these three other styles. We get these other what we call insecure styles. And some styles, what we would call an avoidant style is what happens if my parents really aren't paying that much attention to emotional states? And for those folks, they end up learning that emotion doesn't really do them much good, which is a problem because emotion is absolutely necessary for human beings to live their lives. We cannot sense emotion. We cannot pay attention to it. But that never means that it's not at work. Emotion is always at work in human beings. But I may end up learning how to not pay attention to it. And therefore, it starts to have an impact on my life I end up making all kinds of decisions and I can act in certain ways, not having any idea that I'm acting in response to emotional cues that my brain is taking in. I typically am only aware of what I'm thinking about what's happening. Another insecure form is what we call anxious or ambivalent. And this is when a child grows up in a situation in which their parents may not be withholding of emotion, but the child can't really predict very easily whether or not that parent is going to be paying attention or not paying attention. Are they going to be present or are they going to leave? And if they are present, are they too close? And so a child grows up actually being somewhat anxious because they never really know where the parent is going to be relationally and emotionally in proximity to them. You can imagine what it would be like if you worked in a company and your boss has hired you to do a certain job and then there, you know, the boss says to you on some days, well, you, you know, if the boss says, well, you can count on me, but then on the day when you need to count on him and you call him, he's not there. And then on other days when you don't really want your boss to be around because you're doing your work fine, your boss is always in your office and just looking over your shoulder to make sure that you're doing your work that you need to do that. That's going to make a person anxious. That would be what that's like to be in an anxious attachment. And then we like to talk about this fourth form as being a disorganized form. And this is a form that shows up in about 15% of children um, in the in the population of North America. 
And uh, this is what happens when we find ourselves having lived through situations in which uh, a great deal of trauma that is unresolved and unhealed, whether that's sexual trauma or that's violence, uh, living in difficult neighborhoods, violent families, or in uh, situations in which there's been a great deal of negligence directed at me. And um, in, in those folks, uh, just the very, the very notion of being connected to someone relationally, the very act of being close to someone relationally can be quite unhinging. And so somewhat counterintuitively, though our minds desperately long for connection, the very act of becoming more intimately connected to someone can actually lead to some of our undoing and our disrupted emotional states, which often ends up leading them to your and my offices. Yeah, and and when we encounter those people, it's obviously, at least at the starting point, interpersonal human-to-human issues or within themselves like anxiety, depression, uh, but but everything you're saying about these attachment styles also has implications for our relationship with God. And in particular, not what we believe per se cognitively, but how we experience him. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Michael, you make a great point. I mean, um, you know, uh, we like to say in general, uh, this, this is a little oversimplified, but in general, we like to say that the brain operates, the central nervous system operates bottom to top and right to left, meaning that we move, our bodies move by the use of the neurons in the spinal cord, and we ascend to the brainstem, which takes care of all of our vital functions, our heart rate, our blood pressure, our pulmonary rate. And then we then move toward the right hemisphere where we sense things, we image things, we feel things, we have all our incoming and outgoing data around nonverbal cues, our visual spatial orientation, a whole sense of our viscerally felt awareness of life emerges in our right hemisphere. And then our right brain, as we like to say, sends things across the corpus callosum, that little strip of tissue that connects the two halves of the brain, sends things from the right to the left, where our left brain, as we say, makes sense of what we sense. And the challenge is that we tend to remember things far more powerfully that we sense and that we image and that we feel than the things that we think, the words and sentences that we think, which is why it's so much easier to remember the lyrics of a song. If you listen to the song like two or three times, you can remember those lyrics because those lyrics are attached to music. But if you were just given the lyrics and said, hey, could you memorize this poetry? It would be harder to do. What does this have to do with our question? Well, so much of what we experience about God, we experience primarily through our right hemisphere. We come to literally viscerally know in the deepest sense what we know about God, not so much as this logical linear set of cognitive beliefs as much as it is something that we feel. Our challenge is that so much of our life together in the West as Christians has been an attempt to shoehorn what we have come to cognitively believe and assent to from our left brain into our right brain. And the brain just doesn't work very easily that way. And consequently, 
when I have attachment patterns that are largely mediated by the right hemisphere, when I have attachment patterns to my primary caregivers such that my most intimate relationships feel like I want to avoid them or they are anxiety-based because my attachment is insecure, the odd thing is, is that no matter what I read about in the Bible about what God is supposed to be like, I am far more likely to feel him and to sense and to image him to be something very different. And I think that just somehow coming to assent to a certain set of cognitions will transform my life. But it's hard to do that, which is why Jesus says, and the world will know that you are my followers by the way you love one another. People are going to know Jesus by virtue of being in the room where it happens. They're going to be in the room. They're going to be in that space where they watch people love one another when loving one another is hard to do. And loving one another is not just stating a set of principles about what the Bible says about God or Jesus. It is about acting with our embodied states to care for people, to be kind to people, to be peacemakers, not just in theory, but in action. These things that we do that are translatable most powerfully in and through our right hemispheres. And when people bear witness to this, when people have the experience of being known by us because they see us seeing them in that felt embodied space, their attachment to God is now opened to change because their brain is being opened to change. And we would say that Good Friday atonement it is all about that at one minute. It is about Jesus coming in a bruised and bloodied state that we see, and when we do, it echoes the parts of our own felt places in our right hemispheres that feel equally bruised and bloodied. And it is then when I see him seeing me, when he, I hear him saying, I know what your life is like, and I look at him and I say, like, oh, my gosh, like you do. But I will have a hard time sensing and seeing that if I'm not seeing it and sensing it from some embodied person who's like literally sitting with me in the room. Right. Which is where we are called to be as followers of Jesus. So the person who has not been known, who has not been seen, who has not been gazed upon with affection and delight and love, that's going to affect them in an embodied way so that it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to, to experience being known by God. It makes it, it, makes it harder, Michael. I mean, I, you, know, we'd, we, you know, we'd say, like, nothing's impossible with God. And, and, you know, there are, there are plenty of people who, who, over the course of history, who've heard the scripture, uh, John 3.16, right? They, that, that God so loved the word, they hear that, and somehow that's able to capture their imagination in such a way that they can begin to believe in a Jesus that they can imagine has said those words. But what's hard is that for us to follow that Jesus, we actually need to see him. We need to hear him. We need to feel him. It's hard for me to follow an idea. Ideas, in the end, don't really last that long. Um, I can, you know, we say that, you know, the news for preachers um, isn't good. Uh, because if you preach a 30-minute sermon, if, you, if it's not, 
if it doesn't contain emotionally um, freighted stories that capture my right hemisphere um, within 30 minutes, after that 30-minute sermon is done, I'm lucky if I'm going to remember 3% of it. Because I need something that is going to be activating my right hemisphere, something that is touching me, that's going to change my experience of attachment, such that my imagination of a God who really does long to be with me is made literally viscerally palpable to me. And, you know, I I think that this is why uh, so many young people are leaving the church. We think it's because we're not doing the right kind of worship or we don't have the right, you know, exciting books. But it's that uh, people are saying, I, I have this in my head, but that doesn't connect to the broken reality of my life. And once we begin to give practices, rhythms, tools, and, and, and knowledge to how to connect spiritual reality to our embodied reality, um, that can be a game changer and it becomes compelling. It, it, it absolutely is, Michael. You know, uh, earlier today I was uh, reading a story about uh, St. Francis of Assisi. And uh, the story is told of how during one of the Crusades, he accompanied the army to Egypt, where, the, where, the, where this particular army was headed. And he went to Egypt for the purpose, he and his brothers went for the purpose of meeting with the sultan, who was ostensibly at war with the Crusaders. But he went literally as he was quoted as saying, we're going to love him. I'm not going to convince him. I'm not smart enough to convince him. I'm not theologically or historically heavyweight enough to change his mind, but we are going to be Jesus to him. Now the Sultan wasn't converted, but the Sultan most certainly would not ever be converted apart from having an experience in which he senses this genuine connection from St. Francis. And in many respects, I would say this is what we're experiencing today. We're experiencing a need, a deep need in which people long to be seen. Just like Hagar in the desert after being sent out twice and God meets her and she says, behold, the God who sees me. We need to be able to have that conversation, those connections, those interactions with those who are leaving the church such that they can look at us and say, behold, the God who sees me. Behold, the God who sees me literally in this coffee shop, who then when they talk about the Jesus that sees us, it doesn't just make sense logically. It is first something that they sense that is undeniable to them. And that's the right brain. You're absolutely right. It's not only the right brain. I think it's important that we, that we recognize we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater because there are plenty of people in the world who uh, don't really want to have anything to do with Jesus, who think that the right brain is crucially important, but have a very different understanding of anthropology. And uh, they're more than happy to be known. They're more than happy to feel felt. Uh, as long as the God of the Bible doesn't make any demands on them. And so where we're, the next challenge comes is, of course, you know, we speak truth, but truth is 
introduced by grace, right? This is who Jesus is. He's full of grace and truth. And the reality is we are going to be people of kindness. We are going to be people of invitation. We're going to be people who are paying attention to the right hemisphere. And at some point, though, we are going to say, but this is what God is calling me, calling us to be with our lives when it comes to my consumption, when it comes to my technology, when it comes to the biblical you know, view of sexuality. Uh, the demands of God will never be left out of this conversation. But they can't be heard at all if my right brain is being shut out of the conversation. I, uh, I read the book, I think it's Ian McGilchrist, uh, The Master and His Emissary. And I, I wish we had more time to unpack this, but the idea, if I understood it correctly, is that we have made the left brain, uh, that logical, rational part of the brain, the master, and we've we've subjugated the the right brain, that that knowing, receptive part. And you're saying, and his point is, is that the master is to is to be the right brain, and that's to to. Um, allow for and create the connecting and the knowing and the being known and that the, the, the rational part is to serve that, that that's to be the servant. Can you just comment on that as we wrap up? Cause we're, we're close to running out of time and you're busy and I want to honor the schedule, but just, just comment on that integration of the left and right. You bet. Um, yeah. First of all, I think, I think that, 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 that work of McGilchrist's is really lovely and, uh, and in many respects, a one of many respects, a one of a kind. Um, it is true. I mean, we, we say, uh, what, what I invite people to consider is that it is true that we want to know things, but the biblical narrative suggests that we come to know things in the service of being known. We come to know things in the service of being known. I want to know, of course, I want to know that I'm going to give the child this antibiotic and help them and not this antibiotic and kill them. I want to know that. But I really want to know that in the service of helping the child, in the service of connecting, in the service of creating a world of goodness and beauty, which, as McGilchrist rightly points out, we encounter beauty. We encounter these things in the right hemisphere most profoundly in three ways, in nature, in art, and in our religious experience. And it is in that space, into that space that so much of our left hemisphere has intruded so that we think that like navigating life is mostly about knowing stuff. And again, I would suggest that the knowing stuff is a way ultimately to protect myself against my shame. Because if I can know things, then as we mentioned earlier, I can get to a point where I no longer have to depend upon someone else. I no longer have to come to a point where I may necessarily have to be vulnerable. I may not have to live into that created hope of Genesis 2.25, where the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. I can protect myself against that. But God is saying to us that in order for us to have new creation, we must be vulnerable. And he begins that with a Jesus who is stripped naked and beaten and crucified. 
he is a vulnerable God. He was a vulnerable God when he made us back in Genesis. And people, as it turns out, are really attracted to vulnerability. Vulnerability, when it is working well, it opens windows and doors into people's hearts for them to actually be vulnerable themselves. And so open their hearts to healing, but also to commissioning, to new creation, to doing things that they thought they couldn't do, to trying new things, to taking new risks relationally and vocationally. Evil has this intention of keeping the right and the left hemisphere separate, keeping us disintegrated, keeping that left brain trying to, even though it was originally the emissary, it's now trying to master the right brain. And in so doing, keep us in a state of rather ongoing condemnation, both of myself and of others, utilizing shame to do this, in its attempt to devour and destroy the universe. But the gospel comes and says, we are not going to, we, the Trinity, we are not going to let that wielding of shame stand in between us and what we envision the world to be and what we've envisioned it to be from the beginning. And with that, uh, the audience where I'm sitting uh, just stood up and gave you a standing ovation. Uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson, thank you so much. Uh, I'm an evangelist for your book, The Anatomy of the Soul, and the follow-up book, The Soul of Shame. I'm telling everybody, uh, including my clients uh, and those in my circles about these books. I hope we get a chance to talk again. I do so hope so as well, Michael. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be with you. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com.